and connecting and finding opportunities of mutual interest. And probably the best way to do that is is to be an active member of the scientific community, to be going to conferences, you know, starting a conversation, um, finding those areas of, of potential uh, collaboration, and then building that communication and, and understanding. You just heard Dr. Gail Hagler of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, who joins us in this episode for a conversation about building a research career at the EPA. And what are some ways that university researchers can build relationships, collaboratively research together, and then seek funding from the EPA? Much of this knowledge can apply further to other agencies that are also mission-driven, as I think you'll see. Welcome to Helium Podcast. I'm Christine Ogilvie-Hendren. Matt Hotze, my trusty partner, or podner, I guess, um, he's going to groan so hard at that one, uh, is not here this week, but he will be back next time. In this episode, we talk about mission-driven research of an agency like the EPA, touching a bit more on what we first dug into in our conversation with Dr. David Jasby in episode four. For someone starting off in an academic career, it may not be as straightforwardly clear as, say, an NSF or NIH granting process, how one can get involved in building and sustaining relationships that lead to partnering in the thinking and the work and the funding of your research. So this conversation, Gail provides what I think you'll find to be a ton of really specific examples that'll be real helpful to envision the perspective of a government organization in order to position yourself for collaboration and funding opportunities. One programming note is that for this episode, I was recording on the road and the setup makes me sound a little bit far away. So sorry for that, but luckily Gail sounds great and she's the one who really matters. We're excited that there are now hundreds of you listening to every episode and have been enjoying emailing with some of you who have particular questions. Um, And as Matt and I have said from the beginning, we want to build a community and always want to make sure we're adding value to the conversations. So if this episode or any other sparks ideas, critiques, or wish list of what you'd want to hear about, feel free to send an email to matt at teamhelium.co or christine at teamhelium.co. And if you're loving it and want to leave us a review on iTunes, that really does help other people find the show and grow our community further. With that, let's roll Helium Podcast Episode 23 with Dr. Gail Hagler. Today, we're welcoming to the podcast Gail Hagler. She's an environmental engineer at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're so glad you could join. So um, in the part right before we started recording, we determined that we both work here in RTP, huh? Yes, yes. It's it's a small world here. A lot of exciting stuff happening. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I have spent a little bit of time as a fellow in EPA and um, gained some appreciation for what can feel like the alphabet soup. So without going too far into describing the org structure, could you give a little bit of insight to our listeners for what part of the organization you're in there in NURL and how that plays into research and um, programming, how that connects to academic work? Sure. Um, and, and you already gave away one of the acronyms of NURL, which is uh, N-E-R-L, and that's the National Exposure Research Lab. But I'll, I'll zoom out further and then come in. And you're right, it is alphabet soup. I felt like when I started here, one of my first achievements uh, was being able to say in acronyms 
where I worked, <laughs> which had like layers and layers of acronyms. Um, the, but at, at a higher level where I sit at EPA is in an office called the Office of Research and Development. And that is an office that sits under the EPA administrators, uh, you know, has multiple offices that have the Office of Water, the Office of Air and Radiation. We're the Office of Research and Development. And so we're the research arm of EPA. And our research is to support EPA and to help support the science that EPA needs to be an effective organization um, with its primary mission being to uh, protect human health and the environment. And the way we function, and it, it is unique, I think, compared to some other federal organizations, we actually have a very large body of, of federal staff that are scientists and engineers um, and we have laboratory space. Um, we have the ability to go and do field studies, and we have field study equipment. And we have uh, multiple campuses around the company, uh, around the country, that support that research. So I, I physically sit at the largest research campus uh, for EPA, which is in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, um, and that's where most of the air pollution research is done for EPA. And that's my specialty. Um, but then we also have some pretty significant other locations in Cincinnati, as well as in Athens, Georgia, Ada, Oklahoma. We have uh, Corvallis, Oregon. So we have, we have locations around the country that help support different kinds of environmental research. Um, and in terms of the relation with academia, EPA not only has what we call intramural research, which is research that's conducted by researchers that are uh, attached to EPA that are federal researchers. We also have what we call an extramural program, and we have a grant a grant part of EPA, and that's also through Office of Research and Development. And so we have a grant uh, system where we develop what are research priorities that EPA needs conducted that maybe aren't best fit for the federal research staff, but we want to have that support from the university system, and so we put out grants, or we call them RFAs, where people, universities can apply. And as a federal researcher, I'll, I might be part of the writing team to help develop those grants. I also might be what they call a relevancy review, where once their, the proposals come in, uh, they go through external peer review. And so the peer review part does not involve the federal researchers, but once uh, it's past that point, and they're trying to determine, you know, what is the priority ranking. We may help with with others, other parts of EPA, sort of prioritize which are the most relevant to EPA's mission. And then we also do a lot of collaborative research with universities as well. Um, and so we we may have uh, various types of collaborative agreements, or there's even a collaborative grant option where we work directly with universities. You know, that leads into the, I think the next question perfectly, and I think it's something that we had exchanged some emails about briefly, but before, before we recorded this episode, but basically we're, you know, we're, we're always thinking from the early career researcher perspective. So someone that's just starting out and thinking about how they can be successful with working with the EPA, for example, and you just described a lot of programs that are available for people even outside of the EPA and we wanted to get your perspective on how you've seen uh, successful 
academic and EPA partnerships formed. And, and what somebody can do aside from just perusing the agency website or that kind of basic level uh, as an early career researcher to start to build these types of relationships with the EPA? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say there's a variety of approaches. The most formal approach, which is also maybe the most infrequently available, is a a cooperative research grant. And that's where EPA may put out a grant mechanism, a a grant opportunity, which, which is intended to find a partner that would work directly with EPA researchers and have access to our laboratory facilities, and we will do a project together. Um, an example of that uh, is a few years ago, we had a um, near-road exposure and health study that ended up taking place in Detroit, uh, Michigan, and involved uh, some universities there. Unfortunately, I can't remember exactly which which ones to name off the top of my head, but it, it they ended up being the recipient of a grant to do a collaborative project where we did the field monitoring and they were doing the health effects research. And so that's the most formal one where it's a competition. You have to look for those kinds of grants to come about. What is less formalized and is often a common other approach is um, there are ways that we sort of find each other, either EPA may be doing a field project in a certain location and that university ends up tied into that conversation through a myriad of pathways. It may be that EPA is talking with the state environmental organization and that state's working with the university. And so there may be sort of established relationships that we sort of fall into one another, and then it ends up being fruitful for us to work together. And in those kinds of situations, we could be sort of collegially collaborating, and it's not very formalized. There's also formalized ways to do it. For example, I've had uh, maybe three or four collaborative agreements with universities called memorandums of understanding. And uh, an example one was with uh, University of Massachusetts uh, Amherst, where I had a field monitoring study, and they wanted to be able to add some monitoring equipment to our field study, and then we and then have access to EPA's data, and we wanted access to their data. So we developed a uh, memorandum of understanding. There was no money resource exchange in that case. It was more of a we're going to kind of share space and share data and work on publications together, and and that agreement sort of articulated how do we work together. And that was sort of negotiated and both sides signed it. So that's that's an option where the level of involvement sort of is at a higher level of effort at both sides. And we want to sort of make sure it's going to be successful and make sure there's buy-in on both sides. So we sort of formalize that through an MOU. I'm trying to think of other ways that we often work together and how people have access. There's there's certainly a good amount of sort of collegial collaborations that don't rise to the MOU level. Um, another example I'll give of that kind is uh, being at a conference, ending up uh, running into and having a discussion with a faculty member there who is working on a, a review article and didn't really have much representation 
covering the United States domain. In this case, the review is talking about the use of emerging air monitoring technologies in different parts of the world and asked if EPA, if, if I and, and a colleague would end up joining this review group and co-authoring this review article. And we sort of checked that on our side and were able to say sure. And so with no real formal agreement, formalized you know, legal document, we, we were just part of writing this review article and um, had that go through our EPA review process. And so that's more informal. That's more a developing, uh, I guess, networking and connecting and finding opportunities of mutual interest. And probably the best way to do that is is to be an active member of the scientific community, to be going to conferences, you know, starting a conversation, um, finding those areas of, of potential uh, collaboration, and then building that communication and, and understanding maybe what EPA's research interests are, where that researcher, you know, what, what they might be interested in engaging on, what they may be supported in engaging on, and then taking it from there. So that's a little more um, informal and maybe less predictable, but it, it happens a lot. And I think it happens also within academics uh, just as much as it would happen between a government researcher and an academic. Yeah. I, I just actually had a kind of a random question. It, you're as far as like unique academic fields that you have seen that have been involved in EPA projects. Can you think off the top of your head, like you know some of the maybe some of the researchers? Because as environmental engineers, and Christine and I were raised in sort of the environmental engineer community, the EPA is a natural place to look for collaborations and other things. But maybe you've seen some some unique academic uh, fields being involved in the EPA work? That's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, some of the ones that, and I'll just, I'm sure there's a lot that I also don't know off the top of my head that are I mean, out there because we're a pretty big organization. Yeah, of course. Some of the ones um, that come to mind for me, uh, one is I, I have uh, an uh, MOU level agreement with Carnegie Mellon, and it's with uh, the computer science part of Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. and it's where they had built this open data system that I saw as a great opportunity to sync up with a data visualization system I was building and sort of allow a new capability if we work together. And now, you know, that connection came about through me being at the same conference and seeing them present about this data system and then us starting a conversation and and sort of figuring out whether our two worlds might mesh well or not. Nice. Um, so that's that's computer science. I'm trying to think of other ones. Most most of the collaborations I've been involved with have been more in environmental fields. I know some of our um the health our health lab has done research with folks that are at our um, you know teaching hospitals locally like Duke Duke Hospital or UNC Hospital, and so we have those kind of collaborations as well. I'll have to think beyond that. Um, you know, beyond beyond sort of collaborations, EPA staff and, and myself also serve sometimes as science advisory board members. So one one example there is I'm a science advisory board 
member for a um, multi-university project in Hong Kong. And that involves a lot of different disciplines over there that involves sort of social science and engineering and big data analysis and all, all, all those fields coming together to dry, try to design a, um, an app that could predict anyone's exposure to air pollution at any location. So, so that's another role where I've seen EPA get involved in sort of more of a science advisor fashion to some, some really interesting interdisciplinary projects. So, Gail, I really like how you talked about the type of variety of creative entry points to a scientific relationship. And here at Duke, we work with EPA quite a lot in um, the Center for the Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology. And I've worked at the EPA both when I was a graduate student, I got the opportunity to do a fellowship. And then back here on the Duke side in the faculty arena, we brought people over from the EPA to kind of serve as a conduit and projects. But something that I've noticed that in my experience, has been different from maybe some other grant-based or more contract-based arrangements is a little bit in line with what you described, which is maybe you um, have a relationship with somebody that you know just from the community, from attending events together, asking some of the same questions, and maybe you pursue a line of interesting questions together for a while before it advances to the level like you called it, um, the MOU level. And so I wondered if I'm thinking about people who might be new to starting up a lab or um, being in the academic research realm, what can they expect or, you know, what sort of flexibility and lead time might they be wanting to think about in creating these sort of collegial relationships with folks at the EPA or potentially other agencies where, you know, you're in conversation, it may end up leading to something, but it's a little bit of a, a longer lead time or a less straightforward process than just putting together an NSF grant, putting it in, um, submitting it, and then finding out in a few months. We have found the EPA, for example, to be just a tremendous partner, but it's such a different route, and I only know about it from experience rather than instruction. So I just think all of that preamble is to say, could you have any advice for people coming into this world about how they can foster and you know um, have some faith that some of these great questions they have together could turn into fruitful collaborations that are financing grad students and postdocs together? Sure. Um, and, you know, I think, I think you hit it from the beginnings of sort of ha- starting with relationship building. And, you know, I, I think about some of the um, academic relationships that I have that, you know, I, I did not have prior to joining EPA and were not the result of any sort of network I had coming out of graduate school. And, you know, some of those relationships came about from, a lot of them came about from probably being at a scientific conference, identifying, oh, this is something that we're both really interested in. Either I saw their talk or they saw my talk and connecting and starting a conversation. And some of them, you know, it's simply reaching out afterwards and having a conversation. Um, sometimes it's just sort of keeping up a infrequent conversation about 
you know, here's a paper I saw, or you might be interested in uh, this publication our group just put out and, and sort of continuing to foster that relationship and, and sort of help one another be aware of my, what might be new, uh, new developments that you both would be interested in. You know, something that hopefully would not be a time burden on either side, but it's sort of keeping that connection going. And then I think it's a matter of looking for opportunities. I, I should have mentioned, you know, we we do have the ability to serve as a a co-proposer for grants in, you know, it has to go through our approval process here. There's sort of a formalized approval that needs to happen through our management. Um, but, but EPA certainly has, our scientists have been um, part of proposals before, as long as it's sort of working within all of our, our rules that we follow here. And, in terms of funding, I think that's where I think there's a lot that happens where there there's not it's not like EPA is directly providing any kind of uh, resources to a university. I think all of our grants we try to make sort of fair competitions. Um, I think when people are starting to work together, it may be more of a, a collegial way and a, a collaboration and sort of a sharing of science or sharing of, um, you know, some new knowledge that you're gaining. I think when it's moving into these, these relationships that might involve some level of uh, joint research, that's when it's done in a, in a sort of a careful way that we end up having a lot of work on our end, on the EPA end, to make sure this is in alignment with our management directions here. And these things kind of develop over time. And I would say the, the advice to the academic is sort of be patient and to understand that the EPA researchers, we, we are juggling a number of different priorities and, and uh, research that's on different timelines. And so I think it's good to sort of get to know what's happening on the EPA researcher side, and they may be able to talk through where their world is and, and where there may be opportunities to work together. I don't know if I fully answered your question, Christine. <laughs> no, you really did. I was I was just thinking um, there are so many uh, there's so many different worlds that a person that is at the EPA is juggling, and I think in my experience anyway, it's been really fruitful to try and understand that and and just try to ask directly what are the different constraints. So. You have to, for example, you know, students working on a project in the academic world, there is the academic calendar to be thought of and the graduation scheduling and all of this. And then in the EPA world, maybe it's more of the fiscal year and the budget for that group, right? So I think just, uh, I guess that underscores your point to work on the relationship between the investigators at an academic institution and then at the EPA understand each other's curiosities and then kind of hash out those differences as it becomes necessary. Yes. I think, um, you know, in terms of cues that people could, if people are just starting off and they are thinking, I, you know, I have no, I, you know, this is a big monolithic organization. I'm trying to even understand what are its priorities. I think some places, some starting places, sort of to understand the EPA world and, and Office of research and, De- research and Development. One place I would point people to is to look at our national research programs. 
in our four-year strategic plans. And so we have uh, six national research programs, and um, each one is a different theme, and that sort of sets our research agenda, not, not only our intramural, but also our extramural research agenda. And it lays out for right now, we're in the middle of planning for FY19 through 22. This is what our priorities are. And this is where our time, energy, and resources are going on these priorities. And so I think that's a good starting place to see, you know, is the researcher, is the academic researchers, what they're curious about and what they're wanting to investigate, you know, does it line up with some of these priorities? Or are they exploring opportunities that might mesh really well and it might be a great place to explore possible collaboration? Yeah, I mean... One of the things, I mean, it's very clear from your pre-talk and from your answers to this question that you're very passionate about working for the EPA. And one of the things that we've just had come up today, we talked to an early career researcher uh, uh, just earlier this morning, and they were, we were saying, oh, we're going to have this conversation. And they said to us, you know, you know recent developments have kind of turned me off to thinking about a job in public service and, you know, and I think that's understandable, but we were like, well, let's ask Gail, what's, you know, some of the best things about working for the EPA about being able to collaborate with scientists. And so what keeps you in the, in the job that you have there at, at the environmental protection agency? So I, when I came out of graduate school, um, and probably, you know, a number of your listeners are in that boat of trying to figure out, you know, what do they want to do when they grow up and, and where do they want to go get a, a career, uh, begin their career at least. What I have, uh, wh- why I joined EPA and why I've continued to be at EPA is because it's a, a mission-driven organization, you know, with its mission being protecting human health and the environment, and that, you know, ultimately, you know, yes, there may be a lot of bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> involved with working at the in the government, but at the end of the day, my job is to help the American public and to do the best science I can that ultimately improves public health. And working in the government, I have been able to do things that I highly doubt I would have the opportunity to do outside of it. Um, And some of it I haven't really talked about yet today, but some of what's really unique is how we work with other parts of the federal government. Um, So I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. Later this spring, I will be traveling to Bosnia, uh, where I will be helping the State Department there who are doing air monitoring uh, of a pollutant for the very first time in Sarajevo. And I'm their technical lead on that project. And, you know, this this is a, a really exciting collaboration where we are looking at the use of air monitoring technology. We are providing some of the first data to, you know, the Americans that are living there, as well as helping support scientific diplomacy between the United States and another country. Um, Another example is I collaborate with the U.S. Forest Service, 
And one of the hats I wear is um, serves in emergency response for wildfires, where um, this past fall I was deployed for, for a period of time to uh, wildfires in Utah, where I was a technical specialist uh, sort of analyzing smoke conditions and communicating to the public. And that's another one that is a EPA interagency agreement with the U.S. Forest Service that supports me being deployed, you know, for their emergency incidents. And so there's, there's a lot of really unique things and opportunities. You have to be both a researcher, but also to be able to do some of these really unique opportunities. In my case, I'm really passionate about emergency response. And so it's really exciting for me to be able to be part of my job in an emergency responder role, as well as uh, other parts of my job in a researcher role. I think that's really exciting to be able to work at a couple of different timescales, right? And in both the theory and the data gathering part of science and also the application part. And then, you know, the longer term data sets that you build up and conclusions that you are helping to support um, in ORD, but then also that acute response that's that sounds really rich. And it, it kind of gives a good flavor for why, you know, there are tough parts and challenges of any jobs, but why the things that are famous to talk about with government work, you know, you find all of these really vibrant people that are willing to kind of jump those hurdles in order to do all the unique things you're talking about. So one of the things that that made me think of was if you could just talk about the team environment, because I know that in, in academia, um, there are certain types of, you know, department groups that are collegial and then you build your own team up under you in many cases with postdocs and students. But could you talk about what the teamwork environment and day-to-day experiences of who you maybe work with and how that culture is or isn't important to you at EPA? Yeah, so it is it is a very different working environment than an academic setting in terms of, you know, sort of the look and feel and how the research is conducted. We do not have students that we are teaching or graduate students and and um, we you know we do have a number of younger you know earlier career people that do work here as either postdocs or as other types of fellows like a postmasters or a post bachelors um, some of them may be part time and current students elsewhere but so we do have a, a pretty interesting population where we have some of these early career folks that are doing research and that would be working supervised by a federal scientist. We have this pool of of federal scientists, engineers, technicians, people that uh, provide administrative support. Um, We also have probably half of our population here are professional contractors, and these are people that may have you know, decades of experience in a specific technical skill set that that are helping with laboratories, field studies. We have some uh, machine shops and electronics shops to be able to fabricate things that support research. Um, and so it, it's an interesting environment where um, an ex- I'll try to, I think it might be easiest to give an example project 
an example project that I had. I might, maybe I'll give two contrasting examples because each one is a little bit different. And effectively, you have a research question. You have some available resources, or maybe it's your only your time available, um, and you're trying to accomplish this research. And so an example project I had was a collaboration between myself here in North Carolina with um, EPA Region 2, which is our, um, which includes New York and New Jersey and also Puerto Rico as a piece of trivia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they wanted to do a field study and look into an air pollution question of interest. And so, you know, our research team ended up being myself, an environmental engineer, an EPA mathematician who was a, a modeler, an EPA physicist who was a measurement expert, and then two two staff members uh, that sat up in New York City for EPA. And then we ended up working with two different contracting firms, one who built a whole air monitoring station in North Carolina and drove it up there, and the other one ran it. Um, and this went through Hurricane Sandy. So that's another piece of trivia is one of the few air monitoring stations that did not get horribly damaged during that hurricane. Uh, and then we also had an academic that ended up through a collaboration, MOU, did, did uh, uh, some monitoring at that same location. And so, um, you know, in that case, all the EPA people, we really worked as peers on a team. There wasn't really a hierarchy where with any PI and graduate students or postdocs, it, it was sort of a, a bunch of collegial peers coming together with their different skill sets. And then I was serving as a contract officer representative, that's a governmenty term, uh, where I managed the, one of the contracts and uh, one of the EPA people up in New York managed the other contract. Um, and we, and those contractors, we, um, you know, worked with them professionally. We gave them, we call it technical direction. So they had really clear direction of what needed to be done. Um, and then they helped, you know, do the actual air monitoring work under our technical oversight. Um, so that's one example. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to give another example. I know it yeah, might be a little okay. long-winded. No, no, this, yeah, this is this really is good. Very okay. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I can just stop there. I think it's like <laughs> the gears, right? We're, we're, we're getting a, an example of like taking apart the gearbox and seeing how yeah. the clock works. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. This is a contrasting example. This is maybe one of my favorite projects that had zero resources to it. And it was one where I realized one of our air measurement pieces of equipment we used had a problem and an algorithm needed to be developed to process the data and take care of the problem, basically. And uh, But in order to develop this algorithm, I needed to, you know, not just develop it in a vacuum. I needed to make sure I wasn't, that that it was, something that other experts in that measurement would agree with. And I also needed a lot of test data sets to run it on. And what, and so this was, I was, I think, pretty soon out, out of a postdoc. So it was also a pretty early career. And I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? And the first thing I had to do, this is also a glimpse into the EPA world, or if you're a grantee for EPA, was develop a quality assurance project plan. So I had to develop 
What were my objectives? How am I going to run this research to accomplish these objectives? How am I going to quality assure my results? That's as much as I'll give you on that because it, it's pretty dry. It's <laughs> important. Like it's, it's, right there. <laughs> it's essential. It is an essential part of our world here. Nothing, nothing happens without a quality assurance project plan. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so that was my first step. But then I ended up uh, sort of networking inside and outside of EPA. I ended up connecting with a faculty member who um, you know, had published on this kind of instrument. I connected with the manufacturer of the instrument. And then I ended up connecting with like maybe four or five different researchers who had data sets within EPA that were from different kinds of environments, different pollution levels, different time bases for how they were, like how fast were they sampling with this instrument and worked with all those parties to end up coming up with an algorithm and and having sort of permission to use all these data sets and um, ended up eventually writing this paper and this algorithm is now out there being used, you know, by by all the people in this super niche of measurements. (laughs) Um, And so that's a sort of one that that also has that sort of academic collaboration, but but it really had no resources and it was sort of a, a short-term project. I think that these examples and the, a lot of the rest of the things that you've talked about have given us some great insight for both people that who might want to work at the EPA, but also people that might want to work with the EPA. Uh, I, I think that it's a much more diverse uh, picture than probably most people are looking at from the outside in terms of opportunities and ways that people can collaborate and in, in ways that they can develop their careers. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And I wanted to ask you one last question is where can people go to find out more about your work? In terms of my past at EPA, I, I definitely am on the web. So I think just Googling Gail Hagler, you'll get, you'll get to a lot of, things that have been posted in the past. Um, I think if anybody wants to connect with me directly, my email address, I believe, is also on the web. Okay, Gail, we've got one uh, other question for you, which is something that a lot of people ask about when they're talking about careers, but they often don't feel comfortable asking it on the interview circuit or directly to who they're considering working for. But what is the work-life balance like at EPA in your experience? I'd say that was maybe one of the most positive <laughs> readjustments from moving from a what was a for me a really intensive uh, field work related graduate program to a government research setting because once I came here as a postdoc and then ended up uh, being hired into a permanent position you know I really appreciated how everybody who works here wants this to be sort of normal working hours and and wants you to have off time uh, so much so that when I was a postdoc all of a sudden I was like I need I need new hobbies I have this free time and then you know once we started having children I have three kids you know I really appreciated how we have an on-site daycare I had a lot of support from my colleagues, especially because all my work is team oriented. A lot of my colleagues, you know, really wanted to support me as I went through, you know, having young children and maternity leave and all of those things. Um, And also, you know, I experienced some complications um, and health issues, you know, throughout us having children. 
and how this place worked it out that I could work from home, provided, you know, they called it medical teleworking. And and so it overall it's been a really great place to be both a, a working mom and a scientist and a place that really appreciates kids, wants has a annual take your kid to work day where they you know, have activities all day for the kids. And it's it's been one of probably the best things about working here, uh, in addition to just loving the research that I do. That's so good to hear. That's awesome. I just am really thankful to you, Dr. Hagler, for visiting with us today um, for this great conversation. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, guys. It's been fun. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you. Well, everyone, thanks for listening some great insight here on what it's like to research at EPA or with EPA. And like so many things, I think my takeaway is that it comes down to building relationships, trust, and understanding what the potential collaborator is motivated by and what interests them and what they need. Please remember to subscribe to the show and to join us in two weeks for episode 24 with Dr. Allison Antes where we dig into developing your leadership skills for your research group. That was a great conversation, so hope you will join us for that. Say hi to us on Twitter at Helium Podcast. And as always, we want feedback about the show and love hearing from you all. Music is provided by Michael Blake. You can find him at mblakemusic.com. Edits are by Zach Hendren. Production is by Matt Hotze and by me, Christine Ogilvie Hendren. Thanks again for listening.